I dig that. Now, ladies and gentlemen, repeat after me. Sabrina's Dirty Deeds. <laughs> yeah. Hello, Sab. Well, hello, Jamie. Nice to see you at, like, midnight as the sun's gone down when you were meant to be here at, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning. But don't let me go on about it. Yeah, it didn't take you long to get the, the barb in there. No, I apologise. <laughs> I'm late. I'm really late. In fact, okay. I've got to be honest, mm. I was uh, sitting... Uh, sitting next to my best mate at the hospital, mm. meeting his new son, Austin, oh. when I saw your phone call came through and I realised that I'd completely forgotten about today. So I apologise. It makes you feel sick to your little tummy, doesn't it, when something like that happens? I did. I saw it. And mm. actually, to be honest, when I saw your name, I, I still I thought you might have been calling me about something else. Oh, okay. And then right. I heard the tone in your voice and yeah. I thought, I'm meant to be here today. Mm. Apologies. That's okay, Jamie. That's yeah. okay because we're still going to have fun. Blame my people. Oh, we <laughs> <laughs> I'll get my peeps to talk to your peeps yeah. next week. No, it was definitely my peeps' make, fault. Make sure it's nailed. That electronic diary of mine, not not doing what it needed to do. No, it's all my fault. I apologise. Got here in record time, though. Yes. Yep. Flew through the red lights, did we? Yeah, uh, ran through four no, of them. Just checked out no cameras. <laughs> uh, sped in all the bits I shouldn't have. No, no, I was very safe on the way here. Uh, kept to the speed limit. Good. Yep. Yeah. Didn't run any red lights or stop signs. It was yeah. a joke. Don't get offended. Yeah, it's not worth losing your license for people. No. To be no. fair, the little Ford Focus doesn't go that quick anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> it's not built for looks or speed. It's built for economy. But I'm here, and it's good to see you on a on a warm day. I know. Uh, and good to be here uh, along with our mates Desatco Mulch along with us today. Yes. And for the next few weeks as yep. well, from the farm to you, Desatco Mulch, uh, yep. and you can check them out online as well, desatco.com. And um, we were trying to think of a tag line for them. So I was explaining to you that, you know, when you go down the beach without a pair of thongs on on a 40-degree yep. day, no you good. burn all your feet. You do. And uh, makes beach going unpleasant. It does. So uh, putting mulch on your garden like a beautiful lupin mulch, equivalent, putting a pair of thongs on your feet. Is that true, is it? Yep, that's same for plants, but okay. you can't put thongs on a pair of plants. Right, okay. Pair of thongs on pack of plants. So it could be desatco, mulch, it's like thongs for your feet, for your plants. Yes. Something like that. Something like that. Yeah. Thongs for your plants. Marketing like genius over here. I think we'll make a fortune. So much to offer. <laughs> we'll give them that one for free, I okay. reckon. All right. Then. Yeah. Okay. And then we'll see if they like it in a couple of weeks. Yeah, if they give absolutely. us a call and they go, can you not mention that thongs thing again? <laughs> that was horrible. <laughs> Stick to what you do best, which is in the garden. Read the script. We've got an entire marketing team, okay? Oh, God. Yeah. Anyway, um, good to have them on board, um, especially this week because uh, you've brought a mate in. I who, have. Speaking uh, of heat. Yeah. Yep. What does that mean? He's yep. hot. <laughs> You said it, not me. He knows about heat. Does he? This boy. Yeah, absolutely. So I've got Bob Cooper, who is a survival expert. Right. As in going out to um, places that may look really lovely and hospitable until shit happens and then it becomes a little bit inhospitable. Right. And you need to know what you do. So uh, so Bob Cooper here, commonly known as Vlad because he does uh, lots, has lots of secrets to keep you alive. Intimidating. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so if I was, you know, told that I was going to die in the next day or two, I'd have Bob by my side and he'd go... Pfft. I'll keep you alive for a week. But more than that, he'd actually keep me highly entertained. Okay. So, That's so, two from two. He's going yeah. to keep you alive and you're going to have a laugh about it on the way. As you die. Not it's a bad great. intro, Bob. It's G'day. You think, thank you very much, Sabrina. <laughs> Good afternoon. <laughs> are, you, are you as funny as Sabrina thinks you are? I think I am. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I've got you two laughing already. Exactly. I'm just laughing because uh, I'm scared. I feel like if I don't laugh, you might finish me off. Uh, justification for being late. <laughs> yeah, the keeping up a sense of humour and not playing the blame game and not feeling sorry for yourself is an important part of everyday survival life, the mental aspect of it, but it's a highly uh, feasible, uh, something you have to keep up and be aware of when you're in the emotional state of being lost or stranded in the outback of Australia or the outback of anywhere in the world. That's interesting. Is that is that mental side more than half the battle when it comes to surviving a situation? I think it's more than half because you can go on about you've got three days without water, three weeks without food, but how long have you got without the will to live? So oh, the, the emotional side of it has got to be taken under control straight away. And when we start a course anywhere in the world, I get the people to write down the word control and say, have a look at that. And what can you control in the entire world is what you think. And there's a left and right side of your brain. One side's emotional, the other side's rational. And that's the trouble. When we get in those situations, fear kicks in, which it should do. Fear is one of our five basic emotions and you should welcome it. What happens when fear kicks in, your rational side of your brain comes up and equals with it and you know what to do. But if you don't know what to do, then your other fears bank up on top of your natural fear of being concerned about your welfare. Then you're worried about whatever you're worried about. And that can be your car breaks down in the, somewhere in the outback and you're worried about uh, the fear of death, the fear of being alone, the fear of the night, the fear of being hungry, the fear of embarrassment with guys is really, really high. Then you make a decision based on those fears and that's the emotional side of your mind and that doesn't make any sense when someone's outside the box looking in. And the fear of being lost is massive in people. That can just override any common sense at all. And then you start running. You don't know where you're going, but you're running there. Mm. So the first thing you've got to control and the only thing you can control in the entire world is what you think. So you sit down and stop for a moment and then I call it study. Study the situation. And people used to have study rooms which was quiet and nicely lit and you relax inside of it with a cup of coffee and write down what really is concerning you and how you're going to deal with each, each one of those. And before you worry about any of those other fears, fear of snakes, spiders, dark, all sorts of stuff, which are, by the way, learnt behaviours that well, they're not natural. The only two fears you're born with is the fear of falling from height and the fear of loud noises. If something growls at you or there's an eruption, you're naturally going to fight or flight mode. The rest of the stuff is learnt behaviour. So you've got to control that and you can control it with knowledge. It's a very, very old saying, but it's very, very true that knowledge dispels fear. So that's the first lesson. And part of that is, is don't take it so seriously. Everyone gets into the blame game these days. I'm entitled to go down the track and someone's the, the boggy riverbed stopped me. You know, blame the tyres, blame the car, blame themselves perhaps. Or blame the National Parks for not saying there's a boggy section on that road. <laughs> and then we'll, you sit down with them, with yourself, and go, that's their fault, instead of thinking what rationally about it and say, well, the water I've got, how am I going to keep warm tonight? How am I going to eat the food I've got, ration it, or I haven't got any at all? How can I signal to help myself get out of here and, and prioritise those priorities, which are water, warmth, shelter, signals and food? and get on with staying alive and not playing the psychological downward spiral of feeling sorry for yourself. It's funny. Sounds simple, doesn't it? I know. When you put it like that, I reckon <laughs> I'd go, okay. There's probably some lessons there for when you're outside of a sticky situation, just in your, your general day-to-day as well. But 
you know, that's interesting. Before you even consider the elements, you've got a battle going on in your own head before it all begins. Yeah, I, I, you're quite right. You can apply the same rules to a boardroom or your family and don't get emotional about this discussion that we're about to have about a problem. No emotion. There's to be rational about it. And so how are we going to fix the problem, not the blame? The blame's easily fixed sometimes. And you can go, right, that with, it's my fault, I'm bogged here. Um, and if you're bogged, you let the tyre pressure down. That's the knowledge to let the tyre pressure down to the right pressure and walk out. And in off-road driving, there's two pressures that are critical. One is tyre pressure, the other one's blood pressure. <laughs> you know, don't, get, don't get excited by the, the fact that you're in this situation... Uh, Stranded not forever, yeah. stranded for a short time. So just on that, because uh, a, a lot of the uh, fear-based is, of course, we're used to having a drink of water whenever we want it. If you're a little bit peckish, you go to your fridge and pop something out. So there's a lot of information now about bush tucker and being able to go out and just pluck whatever you want um, so I just want to talk to you about that in terms of people that go out with a little bit, a very small amount of knowledge that there's a lot of stuff out there in the bush that's edible, but <laughs> there's also a lot of stuff out there that is actually poisonous. So what are some of the, what are some of the characteristics of a plant that you could look at and say, how do we know if these plants might poisonous that's one of the first topics we talk about when we get onto edible medicinal plants and useful plants things we can use for tools as well as um, foraging and hunting and making traps and things like that from but to look at a plant we've come up with this plant universal poison indicators so anywhere in the world and it doesn't matter whether you're bogged in south australia bogged in south africa bogged in south bogged in south america Mm. the principles are all the same you, know, you still go through dehydration, etc. So we've come up with nine of them that I've, I've put down, and we teach people those. And the first one is anything with red seeds, don't don't eat it, don't go near it, don't touch it. And there are exceptions to each one of these rules, but there's a, a plant called Abrus pricatorus up in the northwest, which has got red seeds, and one of those red seeds is twice as poisonous as ricin. Yeah, right. So using the Second World War. So that's a good general rule to to keep it played. Red seeds, no go. Red seeds, not red fruit. Yeah. Not you've got a tomato's red fruit, but white seeds. Strawberries, red fruit with black seeds. So it's the seed colour. Then we can go on to opposite leaves. When they grow on a stem, if you look at a wattle tree or a gum tree, there's staggered leaves on the stem. If they mirror one another and come out from the same point on the stem, as then indicates that there's some toxic stuff inside the plant right then we break off a bit a twig of it and have a look for milky sap milky sap contains acetate and acetate burns so if you put that in your mouth you'd burn your mouth or you and you don't want to transfer that milky sap onto your fingers and then onto your eyes and then anything with a palmate leaf shape which is the marijuana type shape Mm -hmm. just think of that as stop because some of the most poisonous plants in the world have that leaf shape then we go on to uh, prickly fruit. Now, again, we know exceptions to that, but if it's got prickly fruit, like the castor oilberry bush, mm. which contains ricin, so you, you don't want that in your soup. <laughs> Definitely not. Yeah, that's and, not the entree you're looking for, is it? Mm-mm. No. And then pea flowers. Is them, it's the gastrolobium family, yep. I believe, Sabrina? Yep. yep. 
and anything with a pea flower, and that's what they make 1080 out of in in WA, which is uh, toxin for anything that's feral, including humans. Feral to the environment, that Mm. is. Yeah, and humans are pretty feral to the environment. Yeah, I met a few of those, yeah. And I think people quite often make the mistake where they see birds eating a berry and then go, oh, I had a little birdies are eating it. Yeah, Must be good for us too. The birds love those bacon and eggplant seeds mm. and things. And over the multi-thousands of years of evolution, our native animals are immune to 1080, for example, and in other countries as well. And just because you, you see a parrot eating the fruit in the jungle, you can't eat it in mm. case you're allergic to it, for one. Secondly, it could be toxic and they're immune to it. Mm. And then if one of the other things when we were teaching jungle survival in Malaysia is if you see something on the ground that nothing's eaten, that's a pretty indicator that it's poisonous. Yeah. <laughs> so then we're moving on from the flower shapes on of the pea flower and about 20% of peas are edible, 80% are poisonous. Really? That's true, yes. Yeah, right. And then we get on to the flower shape. The next one is a trumpet flower or a bell-shaped flower and... What's some examples of those apart from arum lilies, which you eat the stamen out of an arum lily and you'll die? So all po- all lilies are poisonous, but all grasses are edible. Don't get the two mixed mm. up when you're looking at them. Mm. And that bell-shaped flower can be really quite a dangerous plant. Very toxic, like the I have some beautiful blooming um, brugmansias or angel's trumpet. Um, that's what happens if you eat a bit of brugmansia. Yeah. You'll be seeing the angels fairly soon after. <laughs> yeah, then fairy stems are the same thing. And tomato bushes have got fairy stems, so that's the part of the plant you don't eat. So you eat the fruit, but you don't eat mm. the fairy stems. If you eat the fairy stems, you'll be very, very sick. Yeah. And then the last one is fungi. Just leave all fungi alone. Not worth the risk. It's not worth the risk. I call it um, inconvenient similarities. Some of the edible plants look exactly like Uh, poisonous plants and vice versa and some of the fungi takes over 24 hours to react react in your metabolism so you could have it lunchtime today and after lunch tomorrow you could feel unwell and that's the slow release toxins in the fungi so you could have it for lunch and by dinner think that was delicious that was so good i'm going to have another big bowl of those mushrooms yeah and then you're gone. Yeah, and ammonite is a perfect example of that. In other parts of the world where they do a lot of field mushroom picking, like France, there's over five people every year die from accidental mushroom poisoning by getting ammonite mixed in with their, their field mushrooms. And then you've got hallucinogenic mushrooms, and you yes. don't want a handful of them. <laughs> you know, the last thing you need out in a survival situation is an alpha sighting. You know. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to help with the first thing we talked about, no. about staying calm and relaxing. Then once you've looked at it and the plant's okay as far as you haven't got any of those indicators, then you crush a part that you want to use for food and smell it. And you're smelling for pieces of armadota, which is natural cyanide. And there's quite a few plants in Australia that are full of cyanide. And if you crush it and smell it, then you don't go any further with it because they're the, they're the indication of cyanide, which is not good for you. No. And then if it does smell like something that you would eat... Uh, then you can rub it onto a sensitive part of your body that's sacrificial, which is your wrist. And if there's no itching, uh, swelling, red marks, those sorts of things from the sap of whatever you've been, whatever you want to use as food, 
Then you rub it onto a more sensitive part of your body, which is the inside of your lip, which is on a corner of your mouth, each time waiting 15 minutes again for a tingling sensation. And once it goes past that, the part that you think you can eat, put it in your mouth, roll it around about the size of a grape and then spit it out because your tongue's divided up into sensory sections and that'll pick up bitter, sweet, drying, etc. And then once it passes all of that, which takes about 45 minutes, then you can swallow a small portion about the size of a grape and then wait for four hours for a reaction in your stomach. And then once you pass that, that means you can increase the amount of it slowly and that will prevent accidental poisoning in the bush. So but it on, puts a whole new thing on slow cooking, doesn't it? It does it ever. And <laughs> but it's interesting. There's so many really, really good foods out in the Australian bush, and really good, good medicine plants as well. We should be studying our backyard before we start looking at all these other exotics from around the world. And I did something one day with a group of people as a guest speaker. I said, I had a piece of paper on the table, and said, write down all the edible medicinal, all the edible plants, sorry, that you know in the world: apples, oranges plums, etc. And they got about 35 and then they started to run out of names. And I'd just come back from the Great Sandy Desert and in that corner we came back with a plant press with 44 plants in it that were either edible or medicinal. Just out of one corner of Western Australia we had 44 examples of useful plants. But everybody at the table could only think of 35 that they knew of, so we don't even know our own backyard very well. Mm. Yeah, well, we don't say it, do we? No. You know, it's just supermarket and home and that's about it. But that's but that's part of the problem too. I think that's a, a cultural thing, you know, when when English first came to Australia, the bush was a scary, wild place. It was, you know, you don't, you don't go out there... Mm. Um, and I think that culture still partially exists. It does for all sorts of fears, though. Fear of snakes, fear of spiders. Mm. The fear of being lost is massive in people. Mm. And there's nothing more natural than nature. So we've got to be very careful that we don't educate young people with this idea that don't go into the bush and, and be careful, be careful, be careful. It's not that scary. Do we do it in school? Do we take kids out to the bush and teach no, them stuff about our own backyard? Not as much as we should do. Yeah. And that's pretty obvious because there's the lack of respect for the environment at the moment. So you can break a branch up and shoot a few flies away with you and throw the branch on the ground. That's not the idea of it. The idea is what you give out is what you get back. Mm. And respect, along with everything else, comes into this equation. And respect for yourself as well as every living and non-living thing that's in the bush. We should uh, display that. And and as I said, what you give, what you give out is what you get back. And it certainly works. And the first part of that is to calm down and treat everything kindly. Kindness is not a weakness. Mm. So what do you, what do you find when, because you do survival courses, what, what sort of things do you find that people transition through? What do you think they, they end up taking away from that? Uh, they find out more about themselves than they do about anything else uh, along with that word respect again comes into it There's, when you realise that all these things will give you exactly what you need any time you can take it from their bush without any complaints from them you can go up to any tree and take the fruit off it you can go up to any set of fire lighting sticks and turn them into a fire you can, and they won't say any, no you can't use us today <laughs> get off yeah, you'll go away, you're not having me. They'll do that and you can take it all or as much as you need 
and there's no objection. So you've got this big bunch of friends out there, I'll call them, that you can lean on any time to give you exactly what you need. Now, there's a difference between what you need and what you want. What you need will fit into a soap container, size container, to walk through the environment and live out there. What you want, if you're stranded... It's a roast dinner at the end of the night and someone in a comfy bed. Yeah, you want a suitcase full of stuff. Yep. And then you want someone to carry the suitcase. Yep. That's what you want. So when you're in these survival situations, you get on and deal with the hand that you're dealt with and not worry or be concerned about what you haven't got, but look at what you have got. And the first part of that is back to that word control. So take control of what you're thinking of and then work out what you can do with what you've got. And most people can think their way out of things, but they don't give themselves the rational thoughts quick enough. It usually takes about two days before they start to settle down. So, I mean, this is your your area of expertise, but when have you felt the most vulnerable in a survival situation? Where were you and what was going on? Uh, we're in the Great Sandy Desert working for the museum, flying along in a helicopter in the motor stop. Oh, yeah, that's fairly stressful. <laughs> that's that's one of your jokes. Yeah. <laughs> it creates a bit of adrenaline. And then when we landed with the thud, which the pilot saved our lives, we're doing a forced landing. But because the battery had blown up, which was part of it overheated, we didn't have any communication to the outside world. So two of us had to walk out of the Great Sandy Desert to a seismic line uh, to get help. And that was a bit daunting, thinking that you, because the seismic line wasn't marked on the map, so we'd flown over it and we knew it was back behind us east and it was a, quite a long one, a seismic line. It was what they were testing for oil out in the desert and fortunately they didn't find enough to do any drilling. <laughs> So place was left pristine, but in the, on that day we had just one litre of water each for each person on the helicopter, one round of sandwiches each on the helicopter. Nobody knew where we were, and do how long do we wait there? And we had two ab- older Aboriginal people with us, which we were concerned about their health and welfare because it was very very cold at night time. It was about four degrees at night, and around thirty eight degrees during the day. So to stay in that environment with these older people. And the other one was, how long do you wait before you make the decision? So we sat in a circle and talked about it. And I really like circles when you're having a discussion because there's no beginning, no end. Everyone knows, no one's the head of the yeah. table. And then myself and Kim Ackerman, the anthropologist that was with us, we walked out to an unknown distance, which ended up being about 12 kilometres out to the seismic line without a map. So we aimed off, instead of walking straight east, we walked northeast because the seismic line run north-south, so we knew we'd hit it. But what was daunting was not having a map. The aeronautical map didn't have the seismic line on it, and it was 1 as to 250,000, which is a big map. And because I'd take a survival kit with me everywhere I go, we took things with that that we needed in case we got into trouble while we were walking to the seismic line, like the first aid side of it, the ability to light a fire, flagging tape to mark where we were going to bring a four-wheel drive back in to rescue the people in the chopper. And we did it rather well, I thought. Mm. We got out of the seismic line and we walked along that for about three hours before someone picked us up. So the idea was if you go back to that line, you can follow it and chances are you'll run into someone. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And we're hoping, we, we believe they were still working it, so that was their best option. And we had the capabilities of doing it, so... We knew we could do it, and if that didn't work, we could walk back to the helicopter. Speaking of survival kits, you brought one with you. 
Yeah, it's one of the uh, survival kits I was just talking about. It's no bigger than... Uh, it's a very small box and it's, what, about 10 centimetres long and 6 centimetres wide? Yeah, about that. Mm. So, but in... it's it's You know what's astonishing about this whole thing, and I'm sure after people have done your survival courses, is they recognise just how much they clutter their life, not not just with <laughs> stuff, but clutter their head with stuff as well. So when you look at a tiny little kit <laughs> that actually has everything in here that you need to be able to make shelter or find shelter, collect water and harvest food, uh, it's pretty amazing just how much stuff you don't need yeah and there's several ways to light a fire that's a big one in there and to test it i walked through the pilbara with just the kit a long time ago now uh 200 kilometers to test it so i had the maps just that kit and walked 14 kilometers to the first water hole then used the plastic bags inside the kit to carry the water in the sleeve of my jacket so i took my jacket off put six litres of water in, that's the most I had to carry, into the sleeve of the jacket, tie it off, wrap the jacket around it, use the other sleeve as a shoulder strap, and that's how I got from one waterhole to the next waterhole. And then when it was a fair distance between waterholes, I walked at night time because you only need half as much water to perform the same task as you do during the daytime. People have a fear of the dark, though, particularly outdoors, don't they? Yes. Uh, it, your eyes open up like an owl after 30 minutes. You get night vision. Um, and most people haven't experienced that so when we're on the basic survival course every course has to do a night navigation exercise and everybody's really happy about that because they've got a luminous compass you can see where you're going they do a triangle but just before they start they say oh by the way you're not allowed to turn your torch on (laughs) (laughs) so they do several hundred metres through the dwelling up forest at night time without a torch and some nights it can be overcast. You can yeah. still see about 20% what you can during the day. But most people don't go outside and, outside and experience the daylight and the moonlight. And some nights when it's moonlight, you have to wear your hat because the moonlight's so bright. Wow. And walking at night time when, when it's clear, like along a track at night time, is just magnificent. Mm. There's no sunburn, there's no flies, there's, there's different sorts of noises. And you only have to carry half as much water to perform the same task. So when you're in limited water, the way to get around in a hot climate is to walk at night time. And walking keeps you warm. But then you have to have a walking plan. Ah. So my walking plan was to walk for 40 minutes and rest for 10. So I never walked past 40 minutes without having a 10-minute break. And that means you don't build up lactic acid in your muscles. And then the stuff that you take with you is what I needed for first aid, which is in the kit as well. I just want to get walking injuries. I don't know where you fit the little six pack of beer in that tiny little. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's an issue. That's going to be some little mini beers in there. (laughs) But um, yeah, that's the other survival kit. You can imagine that at the end of the walk. Yeah, that's the (laughs) carrot in front of a donkey. Congratulations, you're still alive, kit. Yeah, yeah, celebration kit. We should call it. Can you open that up? What's exactly in there? Can we go through what's inside? Um, it's pretty densely packed. Is it? The the first trick to it is how do you open it up? <laughs> um, I failed already. So um, so 
Well, I'll get Bob to explain. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, so. So this is a your survival kit. This yes, is a, this is the basic one. So as you said, you've put this together and you've you've tested it in the most of uh, extreme yep. fashions. And first of all, there's an instruction sheet, so I can leave it with someone, if or give it to somebody. And the back of the instruction sheet is uh, blank paper, so you can write sketches and write notes and things. If you leave your vehicle, which you shouldn't, most of the time. You can write a little note for somebody who comes along as a rescue party and say, well, I've gone in this direction, and in that, leave a direction of travel area on the ground all the time. There's two clear plastic bags in here, which are 800 mils long, 300 mils wide, and you can put them over any non-toxic tree to get the water out of the tree branch because the water's stored in the tree root, and you'll get at least a litre of water between those two bags every day. If you drain it off every four hours you produce some more water and you can use them for carrying stuff in and you can keep them for keeping your clothes dry you can keep them for keeping leaves dry uh, storing your food in and carrying water from point A to point B there's a magnifying lens in here which is one of those laser cut pieces of plastic which acts as a magnifying lens but it's also good for fire lighting on a warm day it's uh, for people who need glasses and have lost their glasses or broken them or forgotten them and also for first aid, so you can magnify what you're trying to dig out of someone's skin. Mm, that'd be champion. Yeah, lovely. There's four band-aids in here. The medical side of it is two alcohol wipes, which means you can clean your skin before you put the band-aids on. Before you suck them dry? Yep. Because you're waiting for nice that Nice try. No, we've tried that, Serena. <laughs> we've soaked them in water, tried drinking, but it doesn't work. <laughs> That's when good. things get real desperate, yeah. They are good for fire lighting. So if you put a little flame to that, they burst into flames. There's two iodine wipes in here, which are basic first aid. Two cotton pads, which are used for first aid, but also for fire lighting tinder. Because in here we've got a striker, a magnesium flint rod. And you just have to put some, scrape down the rod, get some red hot sparks of magnesium to fly under the cotton wool pad, and they'll burst into flames. So you pull the cotton wool pads apart and use those as tinder we've got a signal mirror in here which is small and signal mirrors flashes as a way to attract attention to you and then you need whatever you attracted the attention of you need some sort of signal to say that you're in trouble by waving your arms or sos written on the ground or help written on the ground is better than sos because most people know what help means mm. Then if we were stranded out tonight, I could offer you a cup of tea tonight <laughs> when we finish building our little shelter. I like that. A little tea bag in there. And then you say, oh, I only drink coffee. I don't like tea, so I've got a coffee satchel <laughs> to stop you moaning. Whinging. Stop yes. your whinging. This is that mental side we're talking about. Just yeah, yeah, a, a yeah. little comfort of home just to put yeah. you at ease. That's, that's exactly it. Now, a lot of people have said it, they're both diuretic, which they are. It means that you produce more water when you go to the toilet. But water can be a problem. Some, I've been stranded for two days in between rising creek sides of a, on a uh, trip up to the Pilbara. So no problem with collecting water then? No, not at all. <laughs> that was the problem was the water. So psychologically you're tapping something that smells and tastes like something you're very familiar with. We've got a scalpel blade in here for things that are cutting out splinters. Four water purification tablets. One glucose tablet for a burst of energy. And then after we've had a cup of tea or coffee, remember this is a metal container so we can actually boil water in it. Mm -hmm. 
used it as a cup as well. And I can offer you either a chicken stock cube for Ooh. tea tonight. Wow. And you only need one-fifth of one of those in a litre of water to make it taste like soup. So you can have chicken soup or we can have beef soup. Yeah. And if you don't like either of those flavours for whatever reason, you can swap them over and, and make it whatever your favourite soup cube is. Or stock cube, I should say. Uh, we have a sewing kit in here which has got some little um, safety pins in, needle and different coloured threads. Because you don't want to be looking shabby. Not when, not when the TV crew turns Absolutely up. Absolutely not. You've you got your, your signal buttons. mirror here to have a good look at yourself, <laughs> which you should do every now and again, Sabrina. <laughs> I could lend it to you later. <laughs> Snap. When Bob came in this morning, I had to go get some retic parts, and he said, do you want to go in your pyjamas? I went, this is, this is, my, this is my Saturday frock. <laughs> it's a very fine frock. <laughs> I wonder what they do with old tablecloths now. <laughs> Here we go. He's on a roll now. He's on a roll. Uh, the next item out of the kit is uh, a fishing kit. So there's 15 metres of 7 kilo breaking strain line, 7 hooks, 3 sinkers and a swivel. So you can go fishing at water holes. 3 metres of braided nylon. Just to um, add to the, the nighty that you've got on and want it to look good. Summer dress. Yeah. Summer frock. A mini torch and battery. And we've got a paper wad in between the battery and the terminal so that it doesn't accidentally get pushed on. Ah. And it's written on the torch to remove the, the cardboard wad before you can turn it on. That's a nice touch. Yep. There's a pencil so you can do your homework, do sketches <laughs> and write notes. And all of this when you're sitting down having your cup of tea or coffee and say, what's really important? What do you think we should do first, Jamie? Get some more, uh, put plastic bags over a non-toxic tree, gum tree, water tree, something like that. On that subject, the most I've seen out of one clear plastic bag on one tree branch in one day was 900 mils. Wow. So nearly a litre out of one plastic bag. And then if you're going to build a shelter, let's sketch how many pieces of of uh, construction that we need not just go into the bush and bring back a whole pile of dead sticks and they're too short the wrong shape wrong we could design a shelter if we were going to build one out of sticks and then come back with the right amount of sticks and not waste energy because when you're in a survival situation the most amount of energy you've got and the best you're going to feel is right now You'll, you'll slowly deteriorate even though there might be some edible foods around and things like that it's still not the a lack of dinner. The lack of sleep, and it's not a roast dinner, <laughs> no. You slowly get fatigued. Uh, we've got a multi-tool in here, which has got a pair of pliers on it, and it's got another a pocket knife on it. It's got a nail file on it, Sabrina. Oh, excellent, because yep. I, I always like to look my best. Well, you've got to pass the time, too. That's exactly you right. Know. Uh, the, the nail file, there's also a pocket knife in this kit, and the nail file will sharpen the, the knife blade. So you can sharpen sharp blade all the time. This thing's like a magic trick. just keeps yeah. going. Does it have a bottom on it? Just yeah, it's like a Doctor Who TARDIS. Yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but wait, there's more. And on the little, little mini multi-tool, there's also the little things for screwdrivers that fix up your glasses and some ah, glasses yeah. when they fall apart. There's a whistle for signalling. The same whistle that's on your life jacket in gotcha. on a commercial uh, plane. Three whistle blast means you're in trouble, so we should come and look for you. One whistle blast means I'm looking for you, so if you went out for a walk and I was worried about you, 
just this kit, you know, I can blow the whistle and you can blow yours twice, means you, you're okay still, you're out there doing whatever you're doing. If you blow your whistle three times, I know you're in distress, and then I blow mine once, then you know that I'm coming towards oh, you. Okay. Yeah. And it's a very good trick to, to introduce children to. So when you take them out camping, yep. hang one of those whistles around in their neck and say, look, if you get worried about anything, if you're concerned about anything at all, blow the whistle three times and mum or dad will come to you. Yep. You stop there. We'll blow ours so you know we're on our way and just keep blowing yours every now and again for three three times and prevent something that like happened the other day when that little girl disappeared for mm. for over 24 hours. Mm. So we yeah. haven't got that problem. And we've also got uh, Mitra, very soft stainless steel wire. It's very malleable for making things. And most I've used that for is repairing boots. Or perhaps you want to fashion yourself a pair of earrings. You could do that as well. Yeah, because I've had my nails filed. And I've you had my cup of tea. The next item out is a mini compass, so you could hang that off your earring. Yeah. <laughs> so direction finding, yep, we teach how to use the sun and stars and the moon to navigate with. But if it's overcast or you doubt you've lost your memory about how to do this properly, you've got your compass as a backup. And then last of all, but not least of all, is a set of mini cards <laughs> so you can play cards but what i've designed these for is on the face of each card is the survival hint so ace is all about water club is a play on food which has got the positive poison indicators on plus some hints on cooking sort of game diamonds is all about signals and hearts is about how to keep warm so you can open that up and then you've got 52 hints on how to signal, how to make water, how to purify it, whether you should drink it or sip it. Those sorts of things are on here, so you can actually prioritise those visually mm. yeah. and shuffle them around and go, this is not a bad plan, because when you've got a plan, plans don't usually fail, it's the fail to plan something. You haven't planned to walk out, you really need to plan it before you do it. Mm. And it's the fail to plan that often lets everyone down, or lets, lets yourself down. And that goes yeah. for everyday life. You yeah, know, have yeah, a, have a bit right. of a plan. Yeah. And if plan if you're not on plan A anymore, what are you going to do? So you should yeah. mentally have rehearsed a plan B. So if this goes wrong, what can we do about it? And then take the things with you that you need to make it easier. And what I've discovered is that you can fit all of these things into something mini that will fit into a large pocket in your day pack and take it with you everywhere you go. Well, then, just put it in, in your car. I mean, yeah, everyone should have something yeah. like that in the vehicle. Now, I have to ask the question that so many people have said. When you get Bob, ask him about, can you drink your own urine? Yes, you can and no, you can't. Right, it's, okay. <laughs> yep. That makes that simple. Yep. Uh, if you mix it with water when you, when you are hydrated, yes. that means you're not dehydrated, yep. then you can. But you've got to drink it fairly you know, within a few hours because it, it turns, the bacteria starts to ferment and starts to become poisonous. You've got to be very careful with that as well because your body's just re- got rid of all these toxins out of your body and it's concentrated in your urine because yeah. you perspire, you uh, respire, so you breathe out moisture and you also uh, urinate. Yep. Uh, urination. So you've got all those things getting rid of stuff out of your body. And the stuff that your body's just rejected. So if you're dehydrated and you do it, for a start, it'll look very brown and dark and not smell not very nice. Not appetising, I shouldn't think. 
No, and every doctor I've ever spoken to said no. It goes straight off says no because yeah. your body's just rejected it. But in a survival situation, people have, but they mixed it with water mm. and drank it before they've run out of water. If you're drinking it when you've run out of water, you could do yourself uh, more damage by kidney failure. Now, my theory was it's better to drink someone else's than your own. Does that hold any water, so to speak? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, it does. You're better off drinking somebody else's, but the same thing while you while you hydrate it and mix it with water. There you so go, Sab. You can, you got a cup. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I think I prefer to drink my own. <laughs> and just on drinking, is it better to sip or to actually have a really good drink of water? You need to drink. A uh, good question, and one of the first trick questions on any survival course to pass people with a sip or drink. If you're down to your last two litres of water, would you drink it in eight cupfuls or would you drink it in 200 sips? And the answer is drink it in eight cupfuls because you have to have enough water going into your system, which is about 250 mils at a time, mm. to hydrate your body. And what happens when you have a sip, the two tablespoons of water that go into your mouth and make your mouth feel good and dribbles down to your stomach is absorbed by the last meal you've had. When that's gone, your liver and kidneys will absorb that. I call them robbers. They're like pirates. They'll sail out, rob the water out of your stomach to keep the, those two organs working really, really well because they they don't believe that you you as a person would not drink enough water okay. to satisfy every organ in your body. Mm. So the first ones that get their hands on it are your liver and kidneys, and they go, we'll have that. Mm. Thank you We've got that. Much. Right? Mm. So then you start to dehydrate from your brain down. And that dribble of water doesn't get to your brain and then you, you start to have uh, thirst, which is a sign of, that you are dehydrated. When you feel thirsty, you're already 2 to 3% dehydrated. The next one is a headache and then that is starting with your brain. It sits in an equilibrium of fluid and is uh, starting to dehydrate. So you get a, a, quite a bad headache and then you feel nausea and then you're in trouble because that starts to go down. And if you keep sipping... And you'll keep going down psychologically and physically. And if you keep sipping, you can get down to a point which which is called dehydration dementia. And it's a legal term. So you can make decisions that are demented in that dehydrated state, which people have done. And they've committed crimes against other people in the same situation, in the, in the situation with them, and been let off in a court of law. And I saw that when I was working in America... Uh, two young people got very dehydrated. One committed an offence against the other one and was let off in a court of law because he was suffering from dehydration and dementia. And that was a sodium level count when they were rescued. And it's happened in Australia as well. Mm-hmm. And people have died because they've been sipping water trying to walk out from where they were stranded. And the person's body was found next to a two-litre water bottle the oh. next day and they'd only drunk one cup out of the two-litre water bottle and the rest was full and the cause of death was dehydration. Wow. And then we had a person recently in the other side of Australia, just before they they perished from dehydration, took all their clothes off and stacked it on the side of the road, put their hat on top and walked off naked in down a track at 47-degree heat. And when I spoke to the people who owned the property, they said, "Was he? did he accept death? And I said, no, that's dehydration, dementia. You do something that would appear to be demented or is demented. Yeah, totally irrational. You yep. hear about that, don't you? People Why stripping off and getting naked when yeah. they're in those situations, yeah, you know, lost in the middle of nowhere and they're yeah. found with no clothes. Yes, and getting 
halfway out and then turn around and come back come again. Back. Yeah. Or going completely the wrong direction. Mm. Just being because they're dehydrated state when they left to make those decisions, that's why it's good to have that pencil and paper to write down things and start thinking straight away and don't let yourself get into a dehydrated state and then make water by using those plastic bags over tree branches. Drink your cup of water when you're starting to feel thirsty. Put the plastic bags over tree branches. Collect things like pig face, which you can squeeze the water out of and drink. Collect dew off the side of the car. Wrap your shirt and your trousers around one leg and your shirt around the other leg in the morning. Walk through the grass and collect the dew and wring out your clothing and, and get the water from that. Turn the car air conditioning unit on and collect the water that flows from the condenser pipe just in front of the passenger's feet. And the most I know of of that using that air conditioning unit to get water is a litre of water in 38 minutes. Wow. So then you've, you, with the, and you can get water out of tree roots as well. You, you dig up the lateral tree roots, hold them so the pointy ends up in the air, and what drips out is water. And my colleagues, friends did that at the museum and got a litre and a half out of a three metre tree root. You add all that up. And that's a lot of water. That's a lot of water. And then you drink your next cup full, and then you drink your next cup full, and you replace it with making water, procuring it, and then you sterilise it by boiling it, and you only need to boil it until, it's, until it boils, which is 100 degrees Celsius. As soon as you get a bubble of water in the water, it's 100 degrees, and that's, that's sterilised. You don't have to boil it for two minutes or three minutes. Giardia and all those other microorganisms that live in water die between 60 and 70 degrees Celsius. So you only have to bring it to, to 100 degrees. Yeah. And as soon as it hits that, it's sterilised. And then if you're up at altitude... Water boils at 90 degrees at 3,000 metres, so it's still above the uh, temperature that kills the bacteria or microorganisms. So make, make sure you also sterilise your water before you drink it, and then you're as healthy as you should be when you get rescued in several days' good. time. You're looking good. You're okay. You've sewed your buttons back on. Yeah. you filed your nails. You're ready to go. Yep. You're, you're ready for it. your tell-all on 60 minutes. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and... You've written down all your jokes yeah, that's that you're it. going to crack as soon as you get picked up. All yeah. those one-liners, which is essential. And you're a card shark as yeah. well. And yeah. hopefully you haven't killed, knocked off all the other people that you're with. Well, you didn't because you, you didn't get to that stage. Well, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, you didn't go down the dehydration route. Hey, uh, that's interesting stuff, Bob. I reckon we could get you back and... Um, chat about a few other elements of this or we could just keep going for another few hours yeah but. i know he's got some very good funny stories to tell we'll get back you know that's part of uh that's part of the uh australian bush culture too it's that sitting around a campfire at night and telling stories it's just such a beautiful thing to do bob's got a few tales to tell i can I can tell you right now. I think that's where we should do the next one yeah, when we have a chat. Yeah, with Bob. Yeah, trying to work our way out of where we are. <laughs> <laughs> Coming back from the chopper. Hey, Bob. So good to speak to you. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Good to speak to you, Bob Cooper, survival expert. That was interesting, Sab. Mm, absolutely. Learned a lot about that one. Um, big thank you to Bob. Big thank you to our mates at Desatco Mulch as well, desatco.com from the farm to you. And uh, we'll be back next week. We will indeed. Promise I'll be on time. Ah, thank the Lord. <laughs>